Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 44, Deuteronomy, chapter 32. All right, last week was essentially a preparation for what we're going to study today. Now, we ended the lesson by briefly discussing the history of the means by which the Bible that's in use today came about, including its progression from the beginning books of Moses, called the Torah, uh, on up to what is dubbed by believers in Yeshua as the New Testament or the Berit Hadashah. Now, the purpose of our preparation was to examine how best to approach Holy Scripture in the sense of prioritizing it, or if we should even do such a thing. Now, we learned that early on, the Hebrew sages taught that it was necessary to carefully consider which of God's laws and principles might carry more weight than others, because inevitably, there would be circumstances, just as a regular course of living, when we're going to have to choose one over the other, because both of the laws and principles couldn't be obeyed simultaneously. And the example I've used on a few occasions is the well-known World War II story of Corrie ten Boom who hid Jews destined for the work camps and eventual extermination by the Nazis. And when she was asked about the whereabouts of these missing Jewish fugitives she was hiding, she said she didn't know. By all that is holy, she lied. She deceived her human government authorities. That's a sin. God never permits lying under any circumstances. Yet, if she had not lied, those Jews that she was protecting would have been arrested and in time killed. She chose to save innocent human life. And she was right to do that. God holds the principle of preserving human life higher than the principle of always being truthful. In the modern era, it's become the general mode of the Western church and much of the Eastern church to locate that first cut at prioritizing scriptures and laws as at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. In other words, we're to make the New Testament preeminent over the Old in virtually every instance. But even more, the general mode is to say that the Old Testament must be read in light of the New. That in essence, we're to make the New Testament the foundation for the Old Testament. And the simplest solution for that is to declare that the Old Testament is irrelevant, it's abolished, and therefore, for a believer, our Bible is the New Testament and nothing more. Now, here's a quote that confronts this challenging subject of the creation and position of the New Testament. And interestingly, it's addressed in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Okay, here's the quote. 
The idea of a complete and clear-cut canon of the New Testament existing from the beginning, that is, from the time of the apostles, has no foundation in history. The canon of the New Testament, just like that of the Old, is the result of a development, of a process, at once stimulated by disputes with doubters, both within and without the church, and then retarded by certain obscurities and natural hesitations, and which it didn't reach its final term until the dogmatic definition of the Tridentine Council. Okay. So we found last week the early church, early meaning the first 200 years or so after Christ's death, certainly didn't agree with our modern concept of a New Testament that supersedes the old, or even rendering the old one obsolete. In fact, the earliest Christian Bible that was used for at least two centuries was strictly called what we call the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And the first books to be added to the so-called Christian Bible were not the letters of Paul, wouldn't even the Gospels. Rather, it was the 15 books of the Apocrypha that had been so important to Judaism for several centuries. Only after that did even one book of what now appears as a separated biblical section that we call the New Testament become canonized and even declared as Holy Scripture. And even when there was no church-wide agreed-to list, it was only some letters that might form a Gentile Christian Bible until the three, till about 367 A.D. at what's called the Tridentine Council. Further, by that time, the church had grown into two primary branches, the Eastern Church and the Western Church. They had different religious centers, different religious governments and leaders, and different religious practices and doctrines. One branch was based in Rome. The other branch was based in Byzantium, modern-day Istanbul. And they remained separate to this day, and believe me, still don't agree on much. Even the Bibles that the Eastern and Western churches use are constructed differently today. Out of the Western church grew the Catholic, uh, and then much, much later, the Protestant sub-branches. The Catholic church to this day still recognizes seven of the books, seven of the books of the Apocrypha as Holy Scripture. Protestants, on the other hand, abolished those books from their Bibles at the decree of Martin Luther in the 1500s. The Eastern Church accepts anywhere from 7 to 15, all 15 of the apocryphal books as Holy Scripture, depending on which of its sub-branches. Even the New Testament sections of the Bibles used by the two branches are slightly different as one accepts the book of Hebrews and the other one doesn't. Well, the focus on our discussion last week, then, was to demonstrate that in addition to Christ's own words from Matthew 5, in no way was the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, abolished. And therefore, it is self-evident that the New Testament must be taken in light of the Old. Now, just as in Deuteronomy 30, 
whereby the Torah was ceremonial, uh, ceremonially laid beside the Ark of the Covenant with the most precious artifact in it being the, the Ten Commandments showing that the Torah was indeed connected to but also subservient to those ten words of God as given to Moses. So in so it is that the New Testament's position is that it must lay, be laid beside the Torah and the Older Testament. The New Testament is fully connected to the Torah and the Tanakh, but at the same time, it's built upon its foundation. The foundation of the Old Testament is the Ten Commandments. The foundation of the New Testament is the old. And I showed that indeed the connection and pattern of biblical authority and hierarchy is even demonstrated in the person of Yeshua as he constantly stressed that he did everything in the Father's will, not his own. And that the Father was supreme, was the supreme authority even though that authority had been given to him to wield. Who can ever forget those dramatic moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that in only hours he was going to be tortured mercilessly and crucified when Jesus asked the Father to what? Take this cup from me, but may your will be done, not mine. What we're going to study today in Deuteronomy 32 was, upon its completion, laid beside the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing that it was under the authority of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 32 is called in English the Song of Moses. In Hebrew, it's called Shirat Hazenu which is the first two words of the Song of Moses. Give ear. Okay. The song is really a psalm. It's also prophetic. It's a poem set to music. It's considered so important in the history of the Jewish people and to Judaism that it is set apart and recited at times of worship and celebration. The idea of pulling a section of scripture out of its context and using it as a kind of standalone part of religious liturgy is also done in Christianity as for example with the Lord's Prayer. Let's read this long song written by Moses only a few days before he died. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 234. Follow along with me, please. Hear, O heavens, as I speak. Listen, earth, to the words from my mouth. May my teaching fall like rain, my speech condense like dew, like light rain on blades of grass or showers on growing plants. For I will proclaim the name of Adonai, 
Come, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all of His ways are just. A, a trustworthy God who does no wrong, He's righteous and straight. He is not corrupt. The defect is in His children. A crooked and perverted generation. You foolish people. So lacking in wisdom. Is this how you repay Adonai? He's your father who made you. It was he who formed and prepared you. Remember how the old days were. Think of the years through all the ages. Ask your father. He will tell you. Your leaders too, they'll inform you. When Elyon gave each nation its heritage, when he divided the human race, he assigned the boundaries of peoples according to Israel's population. But Adonai's share was his own people. Jacob, his allotted inheritance. He found his people in desert country in a howling, wasted wilderness. He protected him, cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers over her young, spreads out his, her wings and takes them, carries them as she flies. Adonai alone led his people. No alien god was with him. He made them ride on the heights of the earth. They ate the produce of the fields. He had them suck honey from the rocks, olive oil from the crags, curds from the cows and milk from the sheep with lamb fat, rams from Bashan and goats, with the finest wheat flour, and you drank sparkling wine from the blood of grapes. But Yeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, thick, and gross. He abandoned God, his maker. He scorned the rock, his salvation. They roused him to jealousy with Alien gods provoked him with abominations. They sacrificed to demons, non-gods, gods they had never known, new gods that came up lately, which your ancestors hadn't feared. You ignored the rock who fathered you. You forgot God who gave you birth. Adonai saw and was filled with scorn at his sons and daughters' provocation. He said, I will hide my face from them, see what will become of them. For they are a perverse generation, untrustworthy children. They aroused my jealousy with a non-God, provoked me with their vanities. I will arouse their jealousy with a non-people, provoke them with a vile nation. For my anger has been fired up. It burns to the depths of Sheol, devouring the earth and its crops, kindling the very roots of the hills. I will heap disasters on them. I'll use up all my arrows against them, fatigued by hunger. They will be consumed by fever, bitter defeat. I will send them the fangs of wild beasts and the poison of reptiles crawling in the dust. Outside, the sword makes parents childless. Inside, there's panic. As young men and girls alike are slain, sucklings, gray beards, together. I considered putting an end to them, erasing their memory from the human race. But I feared the insolence of their enemy, feared that their foes would mistakenly think, we ourselves accomplished this, Adonai had nothing to do with it. They're a nation without common sense. 
utterly lacking in discernment. If they were wise, they could figure it out. They could understand their destiny. After all, how can one chase a thousand? How can two put ten thousand to rout unless their rock sells them to their enemies? Unless Adonai hands them over, for our enemies have no rock like our rock. Even they can see that. Rather, their vine is from the vine of Sodom, from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are poisonous. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is snake poison, the cruel venom of vipers. Isn't this hidden with me sealed in my storehouses? Vengeance and payback are mine for the time when their foot slips. For the day of their calamities coming soon, their doom is rushing upon them. Yes, Adonai will judge his people, taking pity on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone, that no one is left slave or free. And then he'll ask, so where are their gods? The rock in whom they trusted. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let him get up and help you. Let him protect you. See now that I, yes, I am he. There's no God beside me. I put to death, I make alive, I wound, I heal. No one saves anyone from my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as surely as I am alive forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and set my hand to judgment, I will render vengeance to my foes, repay those who hate me. I'll make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, flesh from the wild-haired heads of the enemy. Sing out, you nations, about his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries and make atonement for the land of his people. Moses came and proclaimed all the words of this song in the hearing of the people and Hosea, the son of Nun. And when he had finished speaking all of these words to Israel, he said to them, Now take heart, take to heart all the words of my testimony against you today so that you can use them in charging your children to be careful to obey all the words of this Torah. This is not a trivial matter for you. On the contrary, it's your life. Through it you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And that same day Adonai said to Moses, Now go up into the Avarim range to Mount Nebo, into the land of Moab across from Jericho, and look out over the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel as a possession. On the mountain you are ascending, you will die. You will be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor. Gathered his, and was gathered to his people. The reason for this is that you broke faith with me. There among the people of Israel at the Mivrat Kadesh Spring in the Sin Desert, you failed to demonstrate my holiness there among the people of Israel. So you will see the land from a distance but you will not enter the land I'm giving to the people of Israel. The tone of this song 
is interesting. Nowhere in it are the covenants of Mount Sinai or of Abraham mentioned. Many Bible critics say that this Song of Moses is patterned more after the terms of a peace treaty as commonly used between a vassal state and the king of an empire that's conquered them. But the usual treaty legal jargon in context is lacking. And so with no mention of any covenant, this shoots holes in this basically being a suzerain treaty theory. Rather, the, the tone of Moses' song, the tone of this song, is more like that of a relationship between a father and his rebellious son. And the premise is that Jehovah has created Israel. He's treated them with great favor above all other creations. Israel is his precious firstborn son. Thus, Israel has a moral obligation to respond with obedience, reflecting their loyalty, itself born from gratitude. Verse 1 says that the heavens and the earth are to be witnesses to the facts of the case and to the charges that were going to be leveled against Israel by Jehovah. The term heavens is referring to the sky and the objects that hang in it, not God's spiritual dwelling place. As created things, the heavens and the earth are not asked to do anything but listen to the indictment. They have no role in carrying out punishment upon Israel. We find prophets from later times like Isaiah and Jeremiah who invoke similar imagery of heavens and the earth as witnesses to Israel's unfaithfulness to their God. Now as I I, I read this beautiful, powerful poem, I'm reminded of the many talks I had, as most fathers have had, with my sons, when at an early age, they had a lot of trouble choosing what was right. And invariably, I would begin our talk in similar fashion as Moses says in verse 2, and I paraphrase, I hope you can hear me. I hope you can see that my purpose is only good for you. That what I offer is wisdom that is as rain. And now it's either going to meet with welcoming soil that drinks it in and then produces good things, or it's going to meet it as stony soil that resists the moisture and then it just rolls off lost and unwanted. This song is an expression of hope. Hope that Israel will listen to the words of Moses and heed those words before the inevitable happens. It it is a hope that Israel will listen and remember all that the Lord has done for them. 
and thus not subject themselves to a wrath that is justice demands, but his mercy doesn't want to bring upon them. And in verse 3, Moses makes it clear that this song is in the name of God. It's not in Moses' name. It's not even his idea. Although later on, people will give it a title that bears his name. I mean, what the song presents is not Moses' thoughts, but rather the will of Jehovah. To proclaim God's name is to proclaim God's attributes and character. Okay. The Hebrew word for name is Shem. And how I wish that we today could reclaim the real meaning of the word name in our society. For us, a name has no meaning beyond simple identification. One name is as good as another. Some names today aren't even real words at all. They're just a group of letters that can be sounded out. A name means so little in Western culture that when we apply for credit or a title check is run on our home, our social security number is more proof of who we are than our name is. But the real meaning of the word name goes well beyond identification. It's meant to tell the world of our qualities and who we are as a person. One of my earliest childhood recollections is of my paternal grandmother saying to me, you're a Bradford, behave like it. I think that was meant for good. She was a very proud woman who had worked hard for our family under very difficult circumstances. She had gained a very good reputation in the community and she wanted us individually to live up to that reputation. She wanted us to live up to our name. And Moses says that God's qualities and reputation are that he is a rock and his deeds are absolute perfection and that everything he does and ordains is just. He is faithful without fail. He is the truth. In Hebrew, the word for rock is tzur. Tzur. Immediately, most of you are thinking, I'm sure, that one of the wonderful names, attributes, of Yeshua is as our rock. Yes, the Lord being our rock was a Torah principle. It wasn't invented in New Testament times. Calling Yeshua our rock connected him to God the Father in every Jewish mind. Because rock was a common epithet for Yehovah in that era. Referring to Jesus as the rock identified him as the Lord in the flesh walking among us. And of course, that didn't set very well with the majority of the Jewish population. Tzur is an interesting word. See, because it doesn't mean rock like we might kick as we walk along a path. It doesn't even mean a boulder that might 
lie to the side of the path or jut from a hillside. Rather, it more means cliff or mountain. It's a high place that's rooted firmly in the earth, but it, it reaches towards the heavens. Atsur is solid, immovable. It majestically overlooks the plains and the valleys and the, the, the rivers of water that flow through them. So referring to our Lord as Atsur also fits well with the first name, first attribute of God ever divulged to men in the Bible. El Shaddai. Shaddai, as it turns out, is a language cognate of an Akkadian word that means mountain. El Shaddai means God of the mountain. This is the name of God that Jacob knew. So we see the close relationship between these two names for God. Tzur, a rocky mountain or a cliff, and Shaddai, mountain. Now I hope you understand what these attributes of God as listed in verse 4 actually are. Okay? They are the definition of divine love. From God's viewpoint, His love as directed towards us as, is defined as perfection, justice, faithfulness, and truth. That's divine love. Therefore, as we're the objects of His love, as we are His special creations created in this image, He expects us to demonstrate these same attributes right back towards Him in obedience. Perfection, justice, faithfulness, and truth. To do otherwise is not loving God. It is loving our own ways and desires. Loving God is not having a warm feeling towards Him. Loving God is not our doing nice things that makes us feel good about ourselves. Loving God is not showing up for a worship service, singing a couple of songs and placing a few dollars in a plate. When we mouth the words and tell one another that God is love, we need to visualize that what that means in God's economy is that God is perfection, justice, faithfulness, and truth. These are the qualities that when taken together equals God's love towards us because these are the foundational qualities of God. Let me also mention that each of those four qualities is based on Jehovah's ordained systems of perfection, justice, faithfulness, and truth. It is his perfection, his justice, his faithfulness, and his truth that's being talked about. See, we can't make it up as we go, much as we'd like to. We can't substitute our own modern definitions for the scriptural definitions, nor do the definitions change as society evolves. If we think and behave otherwise, this is called disobedience. 
The result is what follows in verse 5. There Moses says that God's children have not demonstrated these qualities back towards God, so they're not worthy of Him. In other words, the problem doesn't lie with God, it lies with Israel. It's not the Lord who's corrupt, it's the nation of the Hebrews. Well, now the tenor of the poem starts to heat up. And after the gentle fatherly urging to pay attention and profit from the advice, the question is raised, is this how you repay God? For all that He is, all that He's done for you all these years? After all, says verse 6, He's your Father who's created you. You know, it's difficult to express just what a shocking allegation has been leveled. Moses says, Israel must be a dull and witless bunch of people. Otherwise, it makes no sense that on the one hand, they can fully know and recognize that Yehovah has both created them as human beings and brought them into existence as a set-apart people, unique in all the world, but on the other hand, treat the Lord as though He weren't the Father Creator in every sense of the word. How do you do that? Beginning in verse 7, the history of God's blessings upon Israel is presented. And these first few words are not asking Israel to think back several hundred hazy years to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but merely back one generation to Egypt. Just one. Ask your fathers, Moses says, if you doubt me. If you doubt what I'm telling you, just ask your daddies. Ask those who actually experienced God redeeming Israel from Pharaoh. Ask those who experienced being led to freedom and then being presented with the covenant of Mount Sinai. In fact, says Moses, the foundation for that relatively recent event, the Exodus, goes back to antiquity when the Most High assigned the nations their places, their territorial boundaries on earth. And the elders, who are the storytellers, the tradition keepers, the leaders of Israel, they're to be consulted on matters of the distant past, so go ask them about it. According to the book of Genesis, you see, it was after the great flood, the Lord divided the single race that was mankind, a single race that spoke a, a single common language into many nations, and then he scattered them over the face of the globe. This was the aftermath of the Tower of Babel. This now brings us to verse 8. An interesting place to take a little mini detour for us to camp here for a few minutes. Here are some words that have been debated, massaged, and changed over time and reconstructing them to their original sense exposes some pretty fascinating results. Now, depending on your Bible version, you could have some radically different words for this verse as compared to some other translations. And the variant has to do with the source of the particular translation that your Bible is based on. See, this is because the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, the text from the 10th century AD, 
The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament Bible text from the 1st or 2nd century AD, and the Dead Sea Scrolls from about 100 BC, all treat verse 8 and another verse that comes later a little differently. Here's the crux of the matter. Verse 8, in most versions, including the complete Jewish Bible, says that God divided the human race and assigned them the boundaries of their nations according to the sons of Israel. According to the sons of Israel. Or, some will say, according to Israel's population, which I believe is what the complete Jewish Bible says. Okay, or something, something on that order. Okay? Now, this verse implies that God created the same number of nations, by definition these would be Gentile nations, as there were Israelites. And since tradition was that 70 Israelites went down to Egypt with Jacob, then 70 is the number of nations that God created. That's the logic. Now, obviously... The account of God creating the nations by dividing the human population into people groups in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 happened hundreds of years before Abraham, the first Hebrew, was even born. So how can it be that God used the number of the sons of Israel to create the nations of the earth hundreds and hundreds of years before Israel ever even existed? <coughs> doesn't make any sense. It is this translation about the nations being created according to the number of Israelites that we find in the Masoretic Hebrew texts. But in the Septuagint and then in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find different explanations. And in both of these translations, the Hebrew says, Le Mishpar B'nai Elohim, all right, which means equal to the number of divine beings. Hmm. Equal to the number of divine beings. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Septuagint, we have God allotting the nations and setting the boundaries of man according, it says, to the number of divine beings, not the population of Israel. That helps a little bit but not much. And while Jehovah assigned those nations to the divine beings, he also set Israel apart for himself. Now some rabbis will say that a better translation is equal to the number of the sons of God. Most Jewish and Christian scholars currently acknowledge that at least during the era of Christ, this indeed was the reading of Deuteronomy 32.8 as found in the Torah. And since the original Septuagint was written even 200 years before that, the mention of the nations being divided according to the number of divine beings had to be closer to the original wording. So what does all this imply? What's the point of even discussing it? Okay, if you're paying close attention, it's difficult to get around the concept that the Bible tells us that there are other divine beings that rule over each nation of the world from a spiritual but very real point of view. What divine beings are we talking about here? Angels? Other gods? Demons? What? What are we talking about? 
Now, to complicate matters is that the word Elohim, which is used here, is both a legitimate biblical title used to denote the God of Israel, but it also legitimately means gods, little g, gods, in the plural, many gods. And also we find this meaning used in the Bible in other contexts. Now, when we realize that the Masoretic Hebrew text was the preferred Hebrew Bible in use in the Middle Ages. It's fairly easy to understand the concern that the Jewish religious leaders would have had over the temptation to interpret Benai Elohim as divine beings of Deuteronomy 32.8 as other gods. And to acknowledge even the possibility of other gods would lead to some pretty serious theological problems within Judaism, especially since it was a foundational scriptural understanding that it was the worship of other gods that was always getting Israel into trouble. But in many places in scripture, in addition to Jehovah calling the other gods false gods, he also calls them non-gods, non-existent. Were these non-gods and false gods the same things as the sons of Elohim, the sons of God, Benai Elohim, also translated divine beings? I, I hope you can see the repercussions here. This is a really thorny issue. Therefore, we can't just dodge it, which has been pretty customary for about the last thousand years, frankly. The question then is, Are there actually other divine beings, sons of God, that God has assigned to oversee the other nations on earth except for Israel, who he keeps for himself? And if there are, what are they? Well, indeed, we find this same phrase... Benai Elohim, sons of God, in use in other places in the Hebrew Bible. In Job 1 and 2, we see the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, as a group who must time to time present themselves to the Lord to give account of what they've been up to, what they've been assigned to do on earth. And one of those Benai Elohim, sons of God, mentioned in Job is even given a name, Satan. It's explained in Job that it is this divine being's job to roam the earth, to see what kind of things evil people are up to. Then he's to go back and tattle to Jehovah and try to convince God to take some kind of destructive action against them. Satan was the official accuser of humanity. Oh, but that's not all. We find this same phrase again in Psalms 29 and 97. In Exodus 15, 11, we are asked the rhetorical question, Who is like you, O Yehovah? Among the sons of God. Among the Benai Elohim. The book of Daniel. 
also lends credence to the existence of some divine beings that God has assigned over the various nations. Now this is worth following. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. The book of Daniel chapter 10. That would be page 1113 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 4 through 14 to you. On the 24th day of the first month, I was on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, when I looked up. And there before me was a man dressed in linen, wearing a belt of fine Ufa's gold. His body was like beryl, his face looked like lightning, and his eyes like fiery torches. His arms and feet were the color of burnished bronze, and when he spoke, it sounded like the roar of a crowd. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see the vision. However, a great trembling fell over them, so that they rushed to hide themselves. Thus I was left alone. And when I saw this great vision, there was no strength left in me. My face, normally pleasant looking, became disfigured. I had no strength. Now I heard this voice speaking. And when I heard him speaking, I fell down in a faint, my face to the ground. Then a hand touched me. He raised me, tottering, to my hands and my knees. And he said to me, Danielle, you're a greatly loved man. Now pay attention to the words I'm saying to you and stand upright, for it is to you that I have been sent now. And after he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Don't be afraid, Daniel, because since the first day that you determined to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard. I have come because of what you said. The prince of the kingdom of Persia prevented me from coming for 21 days. But Michal, one of the chief princes, came to assist me so that I was no longer needed there with the kings of Persia. So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the Akhirit Hayamim, the time to come, the world to come. For there is still another vision which will relate to those days. Okay, here we have what is described as a prince. Now we know from the context it's a spiritual prince that comes to Daniel. But another spiritual prince that was in charge of Persia held him up. And the only way the divine being that was talking to David got free was when the chief prince named Michael came and helped him out in his battle against the prince of Persia. Okay? Goes on a little bit further. Let's continue on starting at 19, and we're going to go to the end. Skip down to 19. And he said, You, man, so greatly loved, don't be afraid. Shalom to you, and be strong, is truly strong. His speaking to me strengthened me. And I said, my Lord, keep speaking because you've given me strength. And then he said, do you know why I came to you? 
although now I must return to fight the prince of Persia, and when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. Nevertheless, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. There was no one standing with me against them except Michael, your prince. Well, now we have yet another divine being, one in charge over the nation of Greece, who is going to come when this other Benai Elohim leaves Daniel. And the reason Daniel's divine being is going to hurry and leave is because he has to go back and continue his fight with the divine being of Persia, which I guess is his current assignment. Further, the only help he's going to get, he says, will come from this one chief Benai Elohim, whose name is Michael. There's little escaping the fact that the Bible says pretty straightforwardly that there are other divine beings, sons of God, who are in opposition and some who are on God's team. And that God has paired these Benai Elohim up with each of the nations that he has created and established on earth. Now let me be blunt. The reason you see most of this covered over and avoided, especially this section about the Benai Elohim in Deuteronomy, is because Jewish and Gentile theologians aren't quite sure what to do with it. There is genuine fear that the masses of followers of the God of Israel will misunderstand and see these sons of God as either self-created or completely autonomous beings or as actual real gods that are usually referred to in scripture as false gods. Further taken to an extreme, it could bring a false credibility to the notion that every nation had its own god or its own set of gods. And we've talked about that a lot in Torah class. I've told you how it was thought among the ancients that every nation had its own unique pantheon of gods. That gods were territorial. That their power ended at the border of that nation. The god of Canaan had power there, but generally nowhere else, for example. Now here's what we can take from this with some confidence. There are other divine beings. They have some kind of spiritual power and control over the nations of the earth. These are not self-created divine beings. They are God-created, Jehovah-controlled. They serve some kind of purpose in his plan of the history of redemption. Satan, the great adversary, is one of those divine beings. They were paired with the various nations created by God as a result of the Tower of Babel, and there's no reason to think that they're not still exercising their power today, albeit at the will of God. They're not gods, but at times they've probably been worshipped as and mistaken for gods all throughout history. Why do I bring this up? Because if these sons of God, Benai Elohim, these princes, as Daniel calls them, do, in, do indeed exist, 
and they are assigned to the nations of this planet, as believers, we'd better know about it. Maybe it'll help us to get a better better handle on just what's going on in this world of ours that inexplicably seems to be tumbling out of control. Where common sense seems to have vanished in our leadership. And a small part of the world is moving closer to God and to Israel, but the vast bulk is moving away from Him and from His people. I told you a few weeks ago that we were going to encounter major mysteries in these last few chapters of Deuteronomy. Mysteries that have held Bible scholars spellbound for centuries. Mysteries that have caused many translators to simply gloss over sections of the Torah and other parts of God's Word where these mysteries appear and in their place insert things that were never there. But they do fit better with long-held man-made speculations and doctrines because they don't bother us too much. Let's move on a little bit. Now that we understand that God gave authority over the nations of the earth to subordinate spiritual beings, perhaps we can better understand the great privilege he bestowed on Israel by saving it for himself. This decision automatically made Israel different. This decision distinguishes Israel apart from all others. And to think that some anti-Jewish, anti-Scripture church leaders later declared that God has reversed this decision and made the Gentile church for the purpose of replacing Israel boggles the mind. So when we see the words that Israel was the Lord's share or Lord's portion, we now know the answer to the question, his share of what? His share of the nations, the rest of whom were given over to other divine beings, but to beings beings that were under, are under God's authority. Okay, here, incidentally, we see Moses call Israel Jacob. Now remember the patriarch Jacob had his name changed by God to Israel. And so Jacob's sons, Israel's sons, formed the nation named for their father, Israel. All throughout the Bible now, we're going to see the names Jacob and Israel alternate. Okay. Now, verse 10 reminds Israel that God found them in the wilderness, or more or less literally, desert regions. It was in the barrenness of the Sinai and Arabian peninsulas that the Israelites wandered. And it was there that they received the covenant with God that made them his people and he their God. Now the usual translation that God found Israel in the desert misses the mark. The verb more means to provide or to maintain. The idea is that Jehovah sustained Israel out in the wilderness and watched over them. Now this is consistent with the earlier statements of God being Israel's father. And in the next several verses, with the various illustrations and metaphors used to characterize this loving care that God bestows upon his people. Well, in the last words of verse 10, 
It says that the Lord guarded over Israel as though it was the pupil of his eye. Now, while the translation about the pupil of his eye isn't wrong, it doesn't carry with it the depth that it could if we were to translate it more literally. I want you to do something for me now. I don't ask you to do stuff like this often, but tonight I want you to do this for me. I want you to turn to the person next to you and look very closely into the pupil of their eye. Look closely. Don't goof around. Actually do it. And tell me what you see. Look into that little round section at the center of the eye. Okay? I'm going to tell you what you see. Hold on a minute. What you see when you look very carefully is an, Im is an image of yourself reflecting back at you as though you were looking into a slightly curved mirror. Want to look again? What this verse literally says is that God protected Israel literally like the little man in his eye. Isn't that nice? The little man is the reflection of the man, you, that God is looking at. Notice how close you had to get to get to see that little man in that person's eye. That person sitting next to you. You can't see it far away. You have to get up real close. This statement to end verse 10 is very intimate. Have you ever sat and just adoringly stared at your spouse or your young child or grandchild, especially when they, even were, when they weren't even really aware of it? Just reveling in their image and thinking how you'd do anything You'd give anything to protect them. You see, this verse is not about God protecting this very sensitive pupil of his eye. It's about God protecting the image that's in his eye. The little man right, of his eye, his people Israel. In verse 11... Another vivid metaphor is used to describe how God cares for his people. The metaphor is of an eagle training its young to fly. It speaks of the eagle bearing the young on his back, taking them to the high places along with him. This didn't impact me until I ran across something that helped me to understand how it is that eagles actually train their eaglets. I never realized before that what's described here in Deuteronomy 32.11 is actually quite literal. It's very real in, in the world of nature. Perhaps the godfather of North American ornithology is Arthur Cleveland Bent. And A.C. Bent in the early 1900s, wrote this observation of an eagle teaching its young to fly. And I'd ask you to become just 
quiet for a moment. Very quiet. Even close your eyes if you feel like it. Now just see if you can visualize what I'm about to quote to you. It's beautiful. The mother started from the nest in the crags and roughly handling the youngster, she allowed him to drop. I should say about 90 feet. Then she'd swoop down under him. Wings spread. He'd alight on her back. She'd soar back up to the top of the range with him and repeat the process. Once, perhaps, she waited 15 minutes between flights. I should say, should say the farthest she'd let him fall was maybe 150 feet. My father and I watched him spellbound do this for over an hour. Boy, what an image. The Lord takes Israel and teaches her in the same manner that an eagle teaches his young to fly on their own. But the only way for Israel to learn is to take her to the high places and release her. Early on, whether it's from a lack of self-confidence or a lack of trust in God or not having learned the intricacies of wing flight, Israel would simply plummet straight towards the hard earth in a death spiral. But suddenly, the Lord would swoop and in a nick of time, catch her on his own back. Back up to the summit. Lord takes Israel only to repeat this process. Sometimes Israel would be given time to rest and catch its breath, but when the Lord decided it was time, flight training starts again. What great patience the Lord exhibits. It doesn't matter how many times is needed. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Israel may feel terrified momentarily, alone, out of control, but in reality, the Lord's always there always going to catch her on his own back as an eagle catches her young. And the purpose of it all is to teach Israel the ways of the Lord. To teach Israel how one day to soar above the high places. Make it so in our lives, O oh Lord. Okay, we'll see you next week.